This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Before we get to the show, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. It's the Car Warranty Extension Company. So this is a great new sponsor that we're working with. And basically, if you have a car or if you know someone that has a car and they need to renew their car warranty, all you have to do is follow the link in the description here and enter your name, your social security number, credit card, and your mother's maiden name, and you'll be good to go. You got $1,000 rebate and you will get free maintenance on your car as long as you own it. It's just a joke. We don't have any sponsors. This show is just brought to you by myself and Carl. So check out Carl's blog. It's 1500days.com. And I have a podcast called The Doug Show. And there will be links in the description here. So yeah, we don't have any sponsors. And we're probably not going to be working with any car warranty companies unless the price is right. I mean, we are uh, open-minded. So if anyone has a car warranty company and you think our show is a good fit for you, just shoot us an email, Carl at milehighfi.com. All right, so thanks a lot. Check out our stuff. If you dig the show, send it to a friend. That's that's a great way you could help support us. And we may have some t-shirts or uh, hoodies or something like that sometime in the future. So just make sure you're on the email list, milehighfi.club, or there's links in the show notes. It's very easy to sign up. So let's just get to the show now, and I'll shut up. Hello, world. Welcome back to the Mile High Fi podcast. How are you doing, Doug? I'm awesome today. I am uh, coming out of a, I don't know if it's a hangover, but we had a couple of beers yesterday and uh, I was a little tired of waking up. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Some of those beers were pretty strong. They'll, uh, yeah, you, you'll never know. Those uh, big ones can knock you down when you're least expecting it. And I got home and I thought, well, I'll have one more beer, which is always a bad idea. Never do that. But otherwise, doing great. How about yourself? Cool. Yeah, life is really, really good. I'm going to tile my uh, front entryway to my home after I get done here. I look forward to those projects. It's nice to do some brain work like we're doing now and doing a little physical work in the afternoon too. So life is good. Awesome. All right. Well, what do we have going on today? We are going to, oh, geez, I, I really dread this one. We are going to talk about the 4% rule. And I'd like to tell you, before we get into it, I'd like to tell you how I first learned about this. Uh, I didn't know anything about financial independence until I was about 37. And I I had this real bad day at work. And I Googled something like, how do I retire early? Because I couldn't stand work. And I never contemplated the idea of early retirement. I never even knew it existed. But I knew my work was going to kill me if I stayed at it. So up came Mr. Money Mustache and J.D. Roth, two of the people who wrote about financial independence early. And the first thing I thought about them was, this is a bunch of crap. Like, this is some kind of scam. No one retires when they're in their 30s, like Mr. Money Mustache had claimed to do. And then I, I read a particular article from him, which changed my mind. And it was one, I believe he wrote it in May of 2012. And it was about the 4% rule. And I started reading this. I'm a math guy. I've always liked science. And this was just about the math of early retirement. And it was at that point I realized that this wasn't a scam. The whole thing is a simple numbers problem. So 
Pete, if you're listening to us, I'm sorry. I thought you were a scam. It was only for 45 minutes. I love you now. Uh, thanks. I'm retired because of you. But yeah, that post convinced me that fire early retirement was an actual thing and that you could do it just based on this simple math behind this infamous 4% rule. But it is very controversial. It seems like it's just so definitive when you hear uh, blah, blah, blah in a rule. So I wonder if that's, you know, part of the stigma. And then a lot of people are also just contrarian, which I, I actually am most of the time. <laughs> so yeah, I, I can't wait to get into it a little deeper. And do you want to, I guess, lay out the foundation or was there anything else with the, the story? Like once you d- discover the 4% rule? Yeah, I think that's it. Let's get into it. Uh, I learned a whole lot about it through researching this episode, but it all started in, let me look at my notes here. It all started in 1994 when this guy named Bill Bangan wanted to figure out how much money his clients would need to retire. So the great thing about listening to Bill Bangan and reading his articles is he really had no idea. When you listen to him, he says things like, oh, I was so surprised by the results, which is good. He might have had preconceptions going into it but or biases going into it, but it seemed like he learned a lot about the whole thing too, uh, about how much money you need to retire. And what he eventually came to is to last for your money to last 30 years, for you to still have money after 30 years, you need to withdraw about 4% your first year, and then you adjust upwards based on inflation. So if your annual spending is $40,000 a year, you need about so the four percent comes and comes to a twenty five x number. So if you need four percent, if you need forty thousand dollars, you multiply that by twenty five, which comes out to a million, and a million becomes your starting point for retirement. And then every year afterwards, you you increase your spending based on the consumer price index, which is inflation. So okay, and it does sound. Actually, now that you you stated out loud, it does seem reasonable. And it's kind of funny it took that long because 1994 wasn't really that long ago for someone to come up with that stat. And I remember, I mean, I didn't start working until after that in the early 2000s, but I don't recall as I'm starting my career and learning about 401ks and all that stuff, no one mentioned, uh, oh, here is sort of the target that you should be aiming for, which seems relatively uh, conservative, completely reasonable, especially if you have no information leading into it. Now, I, I did listen to a recent interview with uh, Bill, and I think hopefully I'm not spoiling anything uh, yet to come. But I think that at the time that he was doing the study and analyzing the data, the average that the financial planners were recommending was something like 7 or 8% for a safe withdrawal rate. Is that about right? Do, do you remember that? Or? Yeah, I think that is right. Okay. Which seems kind of crazy, but I guess during that time period, I guess from the early 80s until whatever, like 99 when the dot-com bubble and all that stuff happened, there was a ton of growth, right? Like year over year, like things were just blowing up. I was a kid, so I don't really remember, but it, well, I guess you were a kid too, but you were maybe paying a little bit more attention. I don't know. So, okay. So we had this uh, 4% rule that's very straightforward. Okay. Yeah. And the amazing thing about it is Bankin came out with this original article in 1994 
There was a follow-up in 1998 called the Trinity Study, which, uh, which three financial planners did. They reviewed the data, and they came to almost the same conclusion. It was a little bit different because Bankin's portfolio allocation was based on government bonds, and the Trinity Study was based on corporate bonds. So I, I think the number Bankin originally came to was 4.12, and the Trinity Study came to 4% because that bond – that those bonds perform a little bit differently than what Bankin had suggested. And then even more recently, someone named Wade Fow, P-F-A-U, I'm sorry if I'm butchering your name, did another study on it much more recently, and he came to pretty much the exact same conclusion that the 4% rule works. So it kind of amazes me that this thing studied originally in 1994, revisited it again recently within the past two years, the, the numbers still hold, and you think of all we've been through. So since 1994, we had the dot-com bubble. We had probably the second worst economic event of all time in the United States, the Great Recession, 28, 29. Uh, we've had the terrorist attacks of 9-11. We've had all these crazy events, yet this core rule still holds up. It, it kind of amazes me. I thought the data would have changed a little bit, but it hasn't. It still works over that 30-year time period. And the 30-year time period – is something that we need to talk about because we're a fire podcast and people are going to not retire at 65. They might be retiring at 45 or 35. So we need to talk about how this works when the numbers get a little bit farther out. Have you looked into that at all, Doug? What what have your what has your research showed you about longer terms of? I haven't looked too in-depth. I'm very much, as long as we're moving uh, generally in the right direction, I feel pretty good about that. So when I looked for additional data, it sure did look like once you got past 30 years, most of the time you were going to be just fine, if not far better than you thought. So at that point, I realized, oh, I mean, I can't plan uh, one year out very well. Like, how (laughs) can I even think about 60 years out? So again, as long as I'm moving kind of in the, the general right direction, I'm comfortable, very comfortable. Yeah. We'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment, but one of the amazing things is how well it holds up, even for longer periods of time. There's there's very little difference between a 30-year and a 60-year time frame. It's not that different at all. So the 4% rule serves the early retiree uh, pretty well. It's amazing how well it holds up, even for longer time spans. And I think there's we have to think about a couple other factors, but we'll get to those a little bit later on in the podcast. Yep. And just now that I'm thinking about it, you mentioned you're a math math person. I, I like math as well. Did pretty good in math and science. So when you're looking at those graphs and projections just in general, a lot of times when you go out very far on a long timeline, things just kind of level out. There's a math term for it. I can't remember. Is it asymptote where you're just kind of near a line, but you don't, I mean, it's, that's not what we're dealing with here, but it reminds me of the same concept. Yep, exactly. So, okay. Is it asymptote? Is that the right term? Um, I don't want to be held to that. Uh, some, someone will complain about it in the comments or someone will tell us in the comments what the right term is, but fair enough. It's, right. It sounds right. That sounds impressive. <laughs> it's a lot of syllables. Okay. And w- one thing, which I think we're going to get to, um, and I don't know if it's the right time, but the allocation, right? So yes. you mentioned bonds a little bit, and I know in the, you know, in the nineties bonds performed completely differently than they do now. And 
that's a deeper concept to get into, but just in general, what was the, uh, what was the allocation for the assets for a couple of the studies? I know, uh, they ended up finding generally the same data. Yeah. So Bangan talked about this at length and he started out with a, uh, well, he went with a couple, couple different numbers and he even goes on to say a couple different allocations are okay. There's some caveats to it, but the main one that most people talk about is a 50, 50. So 50% bonds. And I believe in Bangan's original study, it was large stocks. And then as we said before, the government bonds, but Bangan also talks about going up to a higher allocation of 75% stocks and 25% bonds. And what he had to say about that was, if you go with that allocation, you're most likely going to have more money at the end. But there's risk too, if the market has a big downturn, if you get caught in the precise wrong moment, you're not going to have that safety of bonds to hold you over. So yeah, he and I think the Trinity study just focused, they were mainly 50% stocks, if I'm correct there. Okay. The main point of this is you have to hold stocks. You have to take risk. I, I've heard people say, I, I don't really want to hold stocks in retirement. And if you're not willing to do that, the 4% rule is not going to hold up for, for you. You have to be okay with some risk. Okay. And really, hopefully, the data shows us that it's just going to be a little bit more of a bumpy ride. So the risk has its rewards. And if you have the stomach to deal with it, which, I mean, I think in recent years when we've seen, you know, 2008, 2009, huge crash, things recovered uh, really nicely, uh, even in the past year with COVID and the huge drops. If you panicked, you probably screwed yourself um, if you didn't stick stick it out. And I for whatever reason, hanging, hanging out with you guys, I, I bought more, right? So uh, cool. things dropped and I, I was waiting for some event so I could buy some more stocks, throw in some index funds. And yeah, so it, ca- it came along and I bought a little bit, you know, what, what I was able to get. So nice, nice move. Yeah, thanks. We bought more too. We actually did a cash out refi on our house and uh, bought stocks at exactly the right time. I, we don't, I don't think either of us advocate market timing. <laughs> consistently that's a recipe for disaster especially if you sell when these things happen Uh, i know someone who did just that and uh that wouldn't have served you well if you sold in march when the market dropped you're selling low and buying high which is not what you want to do so yeah uh yeah the next thing we should talk about i think is one of the probably the most poorly misunderstood thing the most misunderstood thing about the four percent rule and that is that the 4% rule was always meant to be a worst case scenario. So it's meant to be how much the very minimum amount you should take if you want to be pretty confident that your money is going to last for those 30 years. Uh, the amazing thing about the 4% rule is in almost every case, in most cases, you're going to do much, much better over time. And if you do the, once you go back and run the numbers, it turns out that you probably would have been able to take out a lot more than 4%. As a matter of fact, Bangan went on the record, went on record earlier this year as saying he thinks it should be 4.5%, which is a which is a pretty big deal. The godfather of this rule of thumb is now upgrading what he thinks, upgrading the number that's huge. And Michael Kitsis, who we've we've talked about, had a great quote. I think you should read this, Doug. You you have a better, more authoritative voice. So Deep voice, say this with with authority, because this is an 
awesome quote from Kitsis, who is a financial planner who writes about the withdrawal rates extensively. The reality is that in the overwhelming majority of scenarios, returns are not so bad as to necessitate a 4% withdrawal rate in the first place. In fact, by applying the 4% rule over two-thirds of the time, the retirees finishes with more than double their wealth at the beginning of retirement. And that's on top of a lifetime of 4% rule spending. Half the time, the wealth is nearly tripled by the end of retirement as retirees fail to spend the upside. That's incredible, right? It's absolutely amazing. And we both, we're looking over the materials uh, in preparation. We both highlighted this section. I mean, it's pretty, it's remarkable. So the 4% rule performs really well. And most of the time, you're just going to end up with a lot more money than you expected. Yeah. Again, it's very conservative. And the other thing about the 4% rule, which people don't realize is how rigid rigid it is. It's saying, take out 4% your first year. And then in year two, you're going to see what inflation was and take out a little bit more to account for that. And then the next year, you're going to see what inflation was and da, 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 da. So never... In the original paper, do they talk about any kind of flexibility? And that's one thing Bangin has been criticized for uh, other people. Uh, I listened to a podcast with him, and he said he actually got death threats death threats from people. Can you imagine that getting a death threat about the 4% rule? That's, uh, I guess there's some people who are insane. But anyway, uh, so the 4% rule is very rigid. It, it assumes that you're going to withdraw this exact same amount and account for inflation every year. It also assumes no future income. And I've got something to tell you. If you're in the United States, senior citizens vote. Social Security is not going away. We're always going to have that at some point of our life. If the world did really go to hell and something goes bad, you have flexibility. We could cut down our spending. You could, uh, We could stop drinking our fancy beer or, or fancy <laughs> tea here, stop buying our, our fancy equipment. Uh, one thought I've had with my own situation is, is I have two children and I don't really want to change their life that much. I want to give them stability. So we've got this house. I want to keep them in the same school. So I'm in the most risky time of my life right now. Once they're older, or if I was a, uh, if I didn't have children like Doug, if the world really went bad, I might hightailed off to a cheaper state or a country with a cheaper standard of living. There's always, I've never met someone in my entire life who couldn't cut some spending out of their life. Mm-hmm very flexible. And I think, as you mentioned, if you're assuming no future income, that is very rigid. But most of the time, especially let's say you're 40, I'm 41, right? So if I'm my age, I'm 41, I'm probably not just going to sit around. I've figured out how to save a lot of money. I worked and learned a bunch of things. Like I would be so bored if I just sat around. I'm probably the kind of person, if I was on a desert island, I would make up projects to, I don't know, move sand from one side of the beach to the other and, you know, just pointless projects just because I want to stay busy. Sometimes like, you know, you have your blog, right? And you make not a huge amount of money, but you make some cash on the side there. So that's just revenue that you didn't even account for. So if you have a side hustle or something like that, you could end up making a lot more than you were expecting. And sometimes like in my case, I ended up making way more than I could have in my old career 
through the side hustles, which is weird. You, you wouldn't think that. So maybe just maybe you find something you're really into and you have sort of a second career. Of course, I'm getting away from the retire portion, but if you love what you're doing, then it's not a big deal. Like you're enjoying it. It's what you'd be doing anyway. Yeah. I, that leads to another topic that we will talk about in a future podcast, but I want to reiterate what you said there. Uh, happy work and work that makes you grow and makes you thrive is the key to a happy life. That work may or may not pay money, but often it does. I think uh, one crazy thing is regarding this 4% rule, I myself was very skeptical and nervous about about the whole retirement thing. And I actually got to my number a year before I quit. I think it was like 13 months it took me to actually leave my job. And uh, yeah, I was kind of fearful of the numbers. This is really going to hold up. And then at about the same time I quit, my wife Mindy is like, hey, uh, I've been writing these blog posts for this site and they want to hire me to do the, the same thing. I'm like, really? You, you want to go back to work? I'm like, and she's like, yeah. I'm like, well, you know, you don't have to do this. You're not doing this because I'm stopping work. She's like, no, I just, I really enjoy this and it'll give me some meaning in my life. And I love talking about real estate. So I'd really like to do this. So I fretted all this time and then she went back to work and it kind of became um, a moot issue. Yeah, you never know where life is going to take you, but I don't know anyone who is retired and you and I probably have more exposure to early retired people through the HQ. I'm thinking about someone right now who did some work with a friend in his in the friend's backyard, and this person got two other jobs from other neighbors seeing him fix this fence. <laughs> Eric, what the hell are you doing? You're working yourself into a job. Uh, so that's uh, <laughs> that's how life goes. But yeah, if you're going to retire and sit on the couch and eat Cheetos and watch TV, number one, you're going to have to buy a lot of soap because those things turn your fingers <laughs> orange, and that's not good. But number two, maybe you should do your <laughs> continue doing your job because. That's no way to live. But that, we'll save all that for another episode. We're getting off track. Sure, sure. And the interesting thing, and I'm going to ask you some questions here. So you found the 4% rule. You realized it wasn't bullshit. You went down the path. You hit the number you were aiming for, and then you worked for another 13 months. Like, How did you f feel? Why didn't you go ahead and pull the ripcord and, and do it? Yeah, well, a lot of it was money because you want to make sure those numbers work and you're worried about a downturn or something like that happening. The, the market's been on a, a big tear. I remember talking to people right about the same time I started the blog in 2012 who, who were like, oh, the market's been on this tear. I'm, I'm getting out. It's going to fall soon. And here I was in 2017, five years later, and the market is still on a continuation of the same tear. So, yeah, I, I guess I worried what everyone else does, what everyone else worries about that the stock market's going to take a hit and that you're going to be screwed and run out of money and have to um, send the children to work at Burger King to, to make ends meet. And there was some emotional stuff in there, too. Uh, early, early retirement's a big change. You want to make sure you have meaning in your life after that. So that wasn't so much related to the money, but just knowing that I'd be happy and life afterwards because I, I did like the core part of my job. The coding was good. I worked with fun people who I enjoyed and still talk to to this day. Um, but yeah, it is. It's like pushing yourself off a cliff and it's an unconventional thing, right? If you tell most people who have never read Mr. Money Mustache or are completely unfamiliar with this concept, hey, I'm going to retire. I'm, 
41 in this 4% rule, they're going to look at you like you're a crazy person. This has happened to me before. People are like, are you sure about that? Like, uh, are you having some kind of midlife crisis? Like, do you have a, do you have the big CDF cancer? Someone asked me that one time. Like, no, it's all good. I just, uh, I think I could be spending my time better. So this whole concept is pretty new, right? Retirement in general is a, a fairly new concept. A hundred years ago, there was no retirement. Your retirement was death because people died. And then retirement came along. And now we have this early retirement, which is even new, which is even newer, the evolution of all this. So these concepts are hard, hard to process, I would say. Yeah. And then the second part of that question, I don't want to take us too far off track, but it is related. So you publish your net worth on your blog, right? Yes. And you kind of, you break things down. So I took a look the other day from a recent post you, you posted and basically not only have you not taken 4% out ever, right? You've continued to accumulate more wealth over time. Is that accurate? Uh, that is accurate. Um, and part of it is because of the spouse FI, spouse financial independence. We just coined this term now, uh, book market. Uh, yeah, but if I had to, I've looked back at the numbers too, I would still have far more money just because of the tailwinds of, of the market. Yep. Okay. And it, it's so, it's so interesting because it was a little stressful going through the process thinking, Hey, am I actually going to retire? Is the 4% rule going to hold up? You stayed working for another 13 months. And I, I think that probably happens a lot where you, people are just like, they're not quite sure. Maybe I'm going to build a little cash reserve or do some other thing to make me feel better psychologically. And here you are years later and you know, you have more money. Everything would have been fine. Yeah, it's difficult. People call it one more year syndrome. I, I call it that. And one more excuse syndrome too. Like, oh, what if I just uh, accumulate this much more money? Or what if I just get this much more cash? Or what if I just stay for this next stock grant? Or what if I just stay for this next promotion? You could think of a, a million reasons to stay at your job. But uh, sometimes it's difficult to find good reasons to leave. But, uh, you know, you'll figure it out. It's sort of like... Uh procrastination by cleaning. I do this a lot where I know I need to do some work. And then I think, oh, you know what? I'll just sweep or mop. You know, the wife likes that. Uh, it's uh, slightly productive and I don't have to do the work that I'm avoiding. <laughs> so it's kind of like that. You keep working. It's not a bad thing to earn a little bit more money just so you're a little more secure, but sometimes it's just like sweeping when you don't need to. Yeah. So, so, so um, I'd like to ask you about your situation too, Doug. I've talked about myself. I know you didn't, your story is a little bit different in that you retired to something you already had, you already had a, a little bit of a gig going. Yep. So I, yeah, it's a little different since I got, I got laid off in 2015 and I had my, my side gig going. And that was, of course, uh, at the time we're recording, that was about six years ago. And we were making, I think, good headway at that point uh, towards retirement, but we weren't thinking early retirement. I was just starting to get some of those uh, wild ideas in my head. And I think it was 2014 when we started tracking proper and, and really aggressively saving and maybe trimming some expenses for, you know, irrelevant stuff that we actually didn't care about much. So, and you'll, you may have to pull me back on track to make sure I answer the, the question, but essentially when I got laid off, we weren't close to being able to retire, e even on a sort of a lean fi 
uh, situation. At that point in time, we, we, uh, we had just moved and our expenses were relatively high. We had an apartment, uh, kind of a nice place in a relatively expensive city. So we weren't close and I knew I had a chance to take my side hustle full time. So I spent time, um, building a business basically. So the first year was pretty rough. Actually that first year where I was on my own for the the full year, that tax year, I think I made 34,000, something like that, which is the lowest I ever made. Um, aside from working in college basically. Okay. And then the next year it, it grew uh, quite a bit and then earned more and more. So, and my wife has been working the whole time as well. So we've just saved and technically, you know, depending on what we call our expenses um, and, and what we're aiming for. Like one could say we hit FI a few years ago. If, you, if you're assuming uh, much higher expenses, um, which we, we are actually considering that, right? We're thinking, hey, we may want to travel more. We may want to live a little more luxuriously, which I mean, we're doing, I feel like we live pretty luxurious, luxuriously anyway. But if you travel, you can make that basically as expensive as you want to make it. So that's one thing we're looking at too. Like, Hey, we want to be able to feel really secure with exactly uh, what we can spend. And we don't want to think, Hey, we can't get that, uh, guac on the side. Sure. You know, we want the guac and sour cream on the side. <laughs> it's a big expense. You might have to <laughs> pump it up from four to 4.01 or something like that to afford right. the guac. Right. So, so yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if I answered the question, but I'll, I'll stop talking here for a second. No, I, I think we've both made a kind of interesting point despite our both, especially my best laid plans to count on the 4% rule. It's become irrelevant for me. It'll come back at some point, but we'll be in a much better financial situation. And, and for you, you're not even retired yet, so the 4% rule hasn't entered into your planning yet. And I think that'll happen for a lot of people. I think it's very good to for it to be your basic rule of thumb, but you'll be surprised by what happens by what happens in life and what becomes of it and the, the money you'll make when you're not even trying to make money. Right. And I think uh, to sort of bring it around and then we can get back to uh, the, the main topic at hand, because I had my side hustle, which I relatively enjoyed, and I was able to make it my full-time gig. Now I'm earning relatively passively or doing exactly what I want to do. Like sitting here doing a podcast, right? We're not earning any money doing this yet. This is just a hobby because we're throwing money into it, but we're able to work on projects that we, we want to work on. And I'm slowly whittling away at any work that I don't want to do specific people. But sometimes you, you work with people and maybe I, I took a, a gig or something like that and I realized, oh, you know what? I didn't enjoy that work as much as I thought. I'm not going to do it anymore. Yeah. And I have the luxury to only do the work that I want to do, which is huge. That, yes. That's one of the big happiness points, right? Autonomy and like choosing what you want to work on. Yeah. Watch out, Doug, because what's going to happen to Doug is eventually the inter in the internet retirement police are going to come for him and he'll say he's, he's retired and then they'll be like, no, you're under arrest because – you are still working and earning money. And that's a touchy topic. But if you're doing what you love, if it happens to make money, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as you're not doing it for the money, your <laughs> primary purpose should be something else. Well, I have learned from hearing about these police. And I stop saying retire early and just say FI. So I usually just stick to FI. It doesn't really matter. People 
I mean, other people talk about the retire early. Most of the time, people just don't want to have their shitty corporate job and have to like listen to a boss that they don't like. So, um, yeah, so I stopped saying retire early because I'm I'm clearly working. Um, But as as we'll get into more and more, you got to do something with your time and usually producing something, challenging yourself is a pretty good way to spend it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have a confession. I used to love the word retirement. I actually got it tattooed on my ass. <laughs> and now for the reason, I just kidding. I did not get it. I have no <laughs> tattoos, but now I hate the word. If I had gotten that to that tattoo, I would have had to get it removed, which I here is pretty painful, but yeah, retirement's a bad word. Cause it means to stop doing something and you should never stop having meaning in your life. And a lot of that is accomplished through work, whatever you decide, whatever you decide that four letter word means to you. Okay. Let's get back on task. <laughs> well, I thought you were going to push people to your only fans page to see that tattoo, but <laughs> uh, no, no comment. We'll, we'll save that for a future. Maybe we'll get a live, maybe we'll get a tattoo live on the, uh, uh, We'll we'll talk about it. I think that's something we can do. We could do it down here in the dungeon. So Amazon does sell home tattoo kits. We'll put an <laughs> affiliate link in the. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. All right, what's next? Uh, sequence of returns risk. Now, Doug, we talked about this a little bit before our recording, and I told you that I kind of dread this because it's difficult for me to explain. But I I thought no pressure, Doug. But I thought you came up with a really really excellent definition of sequence of returns. Here we go. Take one. All right. So the risk here is you might retire at a poor time where returns suck. So for example, if you retired just before the dot-com bubble, or if you retired just before the uh, 2008-2009 housing bubble in that situation, you potentially would have entered retirement and the market went down. So you maybe would have lost. I'm just going to make up numbers. I don't know. Maybe your portfolio dropped by about 20%, we'll say, and you needed to start drawing down. Well, if that was the case and your expenses were, say, $40,000, you would take out $40,000 to live on. And instead of being 4%, that was actually 4.5 or maybe 5%. So you're actually drawing down more from a percentage basis more than you thought. So at that point, it screws up your math down the line. In a similar way to compound interest, and this is the point you brought up, basically compound interest works really well and it's amplified and you can really see the power over time. So it's the same situation except in reverse. So 40,000, if you if you take that out, it's a little bit more than, from a percentage standpoint, more than you were planning on. Yeah, that's a great explanation, much better than I could do. And your big risk is that you have a couple of crappy years. So let's say you retire with a million dollars, you take out 40000 And then next year, the your portfolio is worth $800,000 because we, we've had a big downturn. Now you're going to take out the $40,000 plus what, whatever inflation is. But now you're going to take out a much larger chunk of your portfolio. Portfolio, You're going to take out forty, like 1000 of 800000 instead of Instead of four four percent, did I say forty percent? Four percent. You're going to take off four percent of eight hundred thousand, instead of four percent of one point oh seven million or whatever the stock market would have returned in a normal year. And if you've got a couple of these years piled up against each other, you might suffer, and you're going to be in a little bit of a in a little bit of trouble. Luckily, the four percent rule 
accounts for this because, as we said before, it's the worst case scenario. So even if you would have retired into some very bad times, you probably would have been okay with your money lasting over that 30-year time frame. So one thing that always amuses me about the 4% rule is that the most dangerous time is right after you retire. You don't want this big downturn because well, let's say you have a downturn 10 years after you retire. Well, by 10 years, your money will probably have doubled if you've got an average returns on the market. If you've had 7%, your money is going to have doubled. So the sequence of returns aren't that important. So it's most important right after you leave work. But guess what? Say this happens, this horrible scenario happens. What's also the best time to go back to work? It's probably right after you left work in the first place where you still have connections and the skills are fresh in your head. Uh, another thing I think about how we'll mitigate this when the time comes is just to have a little bit of a, a cash buffer. So if the market takes a huge downturn right after we retire, we'll take out our cash position instead of selling stocks. Um, have you thought about this, what you would do if you had no income, how you would mitigate this risk, Doug? Or? Well, a quick point on the going back to work, because I, I think uh, it's important to note, let's say it was an economic downturn and stopped working. I retired. It may be more difficult to go back to work just because companies yeah. may be contracting and not hiring. So just, you know, from a contrarian standpoint, I'll point, yeah. I'll point that out. I appreciate that. Yeah. Doug. So it doesn't mean that you couldn't get a job somewhere else. And I've always said, if I had to, when I was trying to build the business and, and we were trying to you know, figure out, is this going to work, especially in those, that lean year, I'd get a job anywhere. You know, I can move boxes and, and do some things and, and just, uh, you know, make coffee, whatever, like I'll work, it's no big deal. So I think a person could find a job, especially if they've gotten to a point, right, where they were able to retire, they probably don't need to make the same old salary that they made. They just need a little cushion, a little buffer to help out. So I think maybe without trying, I accidentally actually answered your question there. So I haven't thought about it too much, but I do know one could earn a little money to give you that buffer. Me personally, as I've figured out how to create and grow an online business, I have pretty awesome skills that I didn't have before just from creating the side hustle. So I can I can build websites, right? People need websites built. That's like the simplest thing. I can also do email marketing and uh, help people design marketing funnels and do copywriting and probably 10 other things just related to uh, my side hustle that I started for fun and then eventually like learned a ton of skills, a lot of valuable skills that companies do look for. Sure. And another thing is you kind of hinted at this right there, but we talked about earlier how rigid the 4% rule is. You're going to take out 4% adjust for inflation. So just because the 4% rule isn't flexible doesn't mean you can't be. And just because it tells you you have to take out $40,000 or whatever your first year is doesn't mean you have to do that. Uh, be, be flexible. If you do encounter one of these downturns, be willing to make some sacrifices. I'm sure we all have some buffer in our budget. Cancel, cancel your vacation to go see the mouse. Uh, that's code word for Disney or, or who knows what else. There's always something you could probably do or, or cut out. And we we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but you kind of hinted at it now. Let's say you need $40,000 a, a year to live. That's pretty frugal. If you can do that, it doesn't take that much to move the needle. If you got 
a job or you're selling stuff on Etsy, making $20,000 a year, you've just brought your 4% rule down to a 2% rule. So do that for a couple of years, wait the world out, wait till it gets better. And then you've mitigated your sequence of returns risk. When you mentioned um, stashing some cash and just having that, does that imply you wouldn't pull any of your money from your portfolio uh, aside from the cash and then you can let that money ride basically? Is that the idea? Yeah. So I think what we would do if if I decided to stop the blog and we had no more income, if Mindy didn't work, what we would do is at that time, and I haven't thought about it too much, depends what our situation is at that time. But just off the top of my head, one thing I might do is take out one year of cash, like $40,000, and uh, just have that in there, uh, have that as a backup. If we need money and the stock market is doing great, we would continue to sell stocks, sell our portfolio to live on. But if we had, like for example, if we had a March situation where we needed money and the market's taking this huge hit, in that case, I would tap the cash and not the money. I don't have any formal rules around this yet, what kind of downturn we would look at. And to be totally honest with you, I'd probably make it up as we go along. But yeah, that's a, 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 it's a compromise because you're not making money on that cash. And by the way, we have very little cash now since we have income. Everything is almost 100% stocks. All our money is working for us. But we'd pivot a little bit about we'd pivot and go to a place of greater safety if our income dried up or if we stopped working. Okay. Anything else with the sequence of returns that we didn't hit on yet? I don't think so. I, I think this one is overblown. It it might happen, but it usually doesn't. It's uh, it, It's interesting. This kind of brings us to our next point and that at best, uh, it, you had a you said something really interesting in the opening. You said, I wonder if the word rule in this is what screws people up, is what makes people think it's rigid. Because if you read the original paper, there was no mention. I don't think there was ever a 4% rule mentioned. The guy, Bangin just kind of wrote this as a guideline. He was doing his research. And then I think he even said the media made up that term and just went with it. So now all of a sudden people see this 4% rule. And when you hear that word rule, you think of something very rigid and and non-flexible and it's something that you have to conform to. So, but if you think about it, the all this is based on historical data, right? I forget when the data started in the 20s and the original one went up to 1995, I think, or right about that time, 1994, when the original study came out. But it's all based on historical data. It's all based on past performance. And can you see where I'm going with this? Past mm-hmm. performance is not indicative of future results or whatever you, whatever you read on your ETF perspective. So there's one thing I can tell you with certainty, and it's probably the only thing I can tell you, tell you with certainty. And it's that th- the next 30 years or 50 years or whatever your, your retirement is going to be is not going to be the same as the past. It might be better, it might be worse, but it's not going to be the same. So it it drives me nuts when you hear people talk about the 4% rule and they say, well, I've done my work and I'm going to go with like the 3.78943. Like, well, why would you do that? It's all based on historical data. That's pretty silly. You can't be that certain with something that's uh, with an uncertain prediction. Yeah. And I I mean... 
it's very valuable to have the historical data, obviously. I mean, we're, we've been talking about it for a long time. <laughs> so I think when you look at certain pieces, let's say like the allocation, right? So we were, we were talking about this, these studies and the things we're talking about, 4% rule was based on 50-50 allocation. Bonds have been performing kind of crappy the last several years, right? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how long it spans back. But it, at that point, it does maybe make people question, okay, is this, is this the right approach? But, you know, when we do look back at all the data, we have a lot of, we have, you know, close to a hundred years, I guess, of data, but that's really not that long. You know, a hundred years of data is not really that much, right? Yeah. And think of how much the world has changed in those hundred years too. Uh, we're in a completely different place than we were a hundred years ago. The world is much different. So, I mean, that calls a few things into question, but I mean, the, the fact is you could have retired for, uh, um, you know, from 50 years back or, or even further and like seeing the, the sequence of returns, you run the scenarios, you could plug in the numbers and see that it mostly works out most of the time. And I think people should feel pretty comfortable with that. So, yeah. And I want to reiterate here, I feel bad because I kind of threw the 4% rule under the bus. I think the 4% rule is a really good starting point, but at the same time, you need to be flexible and it's only your starting point things are going to change. Things are going to evolve. Your spending is going to change. The stock market is variable. And so are you. Your needs are going to change as you get older. They might be good or bad. I read something that people tend to spend less money as they grow old. I think that's certainly true in our situation. Once once the kids are out and I think our needs will be less, but then there's other things like healthcare. You could have some healthcare that could seriously derail your retirement. And that's a conversation for another time, but, yep. but nothing is certain. Be, be flexible. Use the 4% rule as a starting point, a guideline, and then uh, pivot and make decisions based on what your situation is at the time and how things are going. And we could maybe think of this as a weather report. Maybe that's a bad analogy, but stick with me on this. So, we're trying to figure out how to retire over the course of say, let's say I live to be a hundred. I don't think so the way I drink, <laughs> but let's say I live to be a hundred. So I'm trying to plan out 60 years of budget and spending. So there's so many factors we have no clue about, but like you said, 4%, pretty good guideline. It seems to hold up for the last hundred years or so, pretty good guideline. And the cool part is as you get closer and you get into retirement, you get into those 60 years, as time goes on, you're able to predict a little bit better, closer to uh, the actual you know dates that you're going to be pulling money out, for example. So as you go along, you can kind of adjust along the way. It's not like we're locked in and we can't make changes. You can. And it's really easy, like on a day-to-day -day basis, you can make the choice to, you know, make the coffee at home versus going out, or maybe the returns are fantastic and you realize you have way more money, like in two-thirds of the scenarios that from our data set here, you end up with way more money and you can get coffee every day if you want to, because you have so much more than you thought. So overall, it's like the weather because typically... The predictions are pretty bad when you're looking a week out. Like, I think we're supposed to get like a foot of snow over, like later this week. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> 
Hopefully, as we get closer, they'll say, we're not going to get that much snow. It's going to be more like three inches. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, week out, they're doing the best they can. And you only have so much data and those variables that come into play. Uh, they're, They're not so clear when you're looking on such a big timeline. Yeah, you just made me think of something else, which I think is interesting. The the four percent rule, and one way to think about it is the risk of it is kind of the opposite of most things in life. Like uh, as our bodies get older, our our risk grows because we're more likely to get some kind of disease or whatever. Our cars get older; they're more likely to break down. But if the four percent rule works as it should, and if the economy works as it should. It's the opposite. Your risk actually goes down because, like you said, two-thirds of the time after 30 years, you'll have much more money. So your risk is all up front, and you would hope that over time your anxiety and your amount of money should grow and things should get easier over time, which is uh, kind of the opposite how, how, of a lot of systems in life work. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, so it's a guideline. It's not like some uh, specific, uh, I don't know what you call it. It's its not like a rule of nature or anything like that. It's just a good guideline for the system that we're looking at. Yeah. I, you know, I, I told you I got retirement tattooed on, on one side of my but I, I got 4% tattooed on the other side. And I think I'm going to have to remove that one too. Do they have a, does Amazon sell a tattoo home removal kit? I wonder if they do. I think Doug, we could look into it. Doug, yeah. if I could find this, I'm going to ask a favor of you the next two. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just kidding. There are no tattoos and Doug will not be removing my ass 4% tattoo. Yeah. Okay. I, I'd do it though, man. If you needed it, I'd do it. Wow. Doug's are, I haven't even known Doug for that long and he's volunteering to remove tattoos. Okay. <laughs> All right. Coming up next, right? So now we have how to apply the 4% rule to your own journey. So we we have hit a couple key themes, but like what what should someone do if they haven't started on the journey? Like what what's step number one? Um, send all your money to us. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, what you have to understand with the 4% rule is once you accomplish your financial goal, I, I call this the two Fs, and those Fs are frugality and flexibility. Because number one, if you're frugal, and don't live a fat fire retirement of $300,000 per year, it's pretty easy to to move that needle. If you do have to have $300,000 a year and the world takes a crap, you're going to have to go back to a high paying job to, to move the needle to live that same life or maybe to live it all if you've got a lifestyle like that. But let's say you can live off forty dollars or $50,000 a year. You don't have to make that much. You could Go back to work at Home Depot or move rocks or be a or be a tattoo removal person. I suspect there's a lot of money in that with how many people have tattoos. Maybe we should look into that. So frugality is huge. If you're frugal, it doesn't take much to move the, the needle. And this could be a temporary sacrifice too. Um, the market will recover and things will get better. So if things get bad, be frugal for a while and then uh, go back to your previously planned life. But the other thing is... I was going to say before we move on from those two pieces, the flexibility and frugality, what would you say for someone? Because I've had this conversation with a couple of folks. They say, hey, I don't want to be frugal. Like I, I do want to be able to do whatever I want. And I'm thinking of a specific individual who he's single. And I think, you know, he, he lives it up pretty good. He makes good money, pretty big lifestyle. So 
technically, you know, I think on paper, he probably should have been able to retire a couple of years ago, but he wants to be able to spend, you know, 80, hundred K just on him, one person. Right. So any thoughts on that? Just the person who's like, Hey, I want to live a, a big life. Yeah. Two thoughts. I mean, this comes down to your emotion. So if you're not emotional and can grasp the math of the 4% rule, the 4% rule still has you covered. If you need $100,000 to live on, that means you need to save $2.5 million to live on and not freak out should that downturn happen. Now, it's going to be harder for that person to recover should the market take uh, take a big hit and they might suffer a little bit more because maybe they uh, emotionally, maybe they have to give up some of those things that they saved hard for. But again, if you trust the math, uh, none of that matters. You should be able to take your 4% up your first year and ratchet it up. Uh, cool. So. Yeah. And my, I mean, the, again, applying the math, it just means he needs to save a lot more than he would have if he lived super cheap. So not a big deal. It's and, and I don't think either of us are saying like one has to be frugal or anything like that. It's super helpful if you can if you can lower your lifestyle. I mean, it gives you flexibility in so many ways anyway. But I think there's room here for people who think, hey, I want to spend 120k per year just on myself, <laughs> or uh, just be able to spend wildly. Like, I think that's fine. Yeah. We're not here to judge. I had a silly expensive sports car at one time in my life. As long as you're okay with the trade-offs that that lifestyle brings with your retirement, you're okay working longer, uh, more power to you do what you think makes you happy. All right. Yeah. I derailed you. What's next? Oh yeah. I was going to talk about the other thing is just to be flexible. If the, if the market takes a huge hit, and you're freaking out, even though you should trust the math on the 4% rule, if you're still freaking out, be a little bit flexible. Maybe you don't need the new car or whatever you had planned, planned to buy. There's always room to tweak your life and do things differently. I, uh, I, talk, I talk a big talk, but man, I got to tell you, Doug, in my head, I have backup plans for backup plans. So I'm like, well, we've got this, but what would I do if this happened? And what would we do if this happened? I've probably spent more hours thinking about this than any other, any other human on earth and like I thought, okay, if we lose this much, maybe we could move out of... Uh, so So Doug and I live in a pretty expensive part of the world, Boulder County here in Colorado. So, But I don't have to live here. We could move to a cheaper part of the United States. If the, real, if the world really went to hell, we could be flexible and move to some other part. We could stop all the silly expenditures we do, like uh, buying fancy beer, going out to eat occasionally. There's always room to trim. So uh, I don't think there's anyone who can't be a little bit more flexible in their life. Mm -hmm. I agree, 100%. So, Doug, one thing I think a lot about with personal finance is I'm pretty, I'm pretty rigid and I'm a numbers guy. So, I look at the numbers and if they say they'll work for me, I'll usually do that regardless of what my emotions might say. And, and for example, another big controversial topic in the, in the financial independence community is whether you should have a mortgage. And I do, even though I don't have to, because I think over the long term, I can do better in the stock market than with a mortgage and paying 3% on that. So I invest the money. But a lot of people know that and they'll still uh, pivot towards paying off their mortgage. And I think that's fine because there's numbers and then there's emotions and you have to do what helps you sleep well at night too. So we talked this 4% rule, but your temperament is going to be key. You have to do what's going to allow you to sleep at night and you have to do what's going to to allow you to 
yeah, yeah, allow you to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to the, I guess the the buckets of money or uh, you know one to two years of expenses, so you wouldn't necessarily have to touch any of the uh, portfolio other than the cash. So similar thing because I've. I don't know if it's obvious, but most likely the cash is not going to be earning any value for you. <laughs> it's just slowly uh, infl- or yeah, deflating and for you and, and not providing the returns. But it can feel really good to have two years of expenses and know, all right, we're not going to have to touch that if any rocky times occur. Like we could just be a little bit more secure mentally and uh yeah super similar paying off the the mortgage uh i mean it's so cheap to get a mortgage right now yeah absolutely but i would also caution people against being too conservative because there's always a chance with all these calculations you never know what's going to happen the future is uncertain so at some point you might run out of money i don't think that's going to happen to most of us. I have, And we've lived through a boom time, but I've yet to met someone who has run out of money or even come come close to it. But one thing you will run out of is life. So be careful about being too cautious. It would, uh, I often think in my own life, if I died with like 10 million or 20 million, it means I, I screwed up. I could have left my job sooner or being or have been doing something that was more meaningful me, more meaningful to me this entire time instead of Working at a job I didn't like all the time. And I'm actually worried more about this, such a stupid statement I'm about to say, but yeah, I'm worried that I'm going to die with way more money than what I expected. And a lot of the stress, a lot of the time I spent on bullshit that I didn't really care about, it was just like wasted. And I could have been, I don't know, sitting around even watching Netflix potentially could have been better than some of the activities I was doing before. But in reality, I it would have been great to to be out hiking, be outdoors, spending time with family, the good stuff that does actually make people happy. Yeah, it's a delicate balance, right? It's something I think about every day. Like if you uh like if you could plan your life perfectly, you would know the stock market returns for every year for the next 60 years so then you could you would know exactly how much money you needed and exactly what was going to happen and then you could plan accordingly. But we don't have that luxury. So you just have to guess, which is what the 4% rule forms the foundation for doing. Awesome. And I guess anything else with uh, applying the 4% rule? Yeah, I, I think that's it, Doug. I think we've covered it. And I think sort of to, to step back and, and just say, if you haven't determined your expenses on an annual basis, like that is the key piece of information that you need. Uh, you need to know how much you're spending and how much you're bringing in. And then you can do the math very simply after that. So yeah. do you have any tips for people to, I guess, determine their expenses if they haven't gone through the exercise? Yeah. I, for one, I think it's a great exercise to do. Uh, I have a confession. We never did it. And when we started to do, to do it, we were pretty surprised. We were spending about probably 40 to 50% more than we thought we were. So everyone should do this. And I think we should cover this in maybe another episode, Doug, because a friend of mine came up with a really cool, easy tool. And it'll open your eyes. We had some realizations uh, that that surprised us, good and bad, when we tracked our spending. But yeah, that's absolutely the key to figuring out the 4% rule and a lot of other things in life too. You'll, you'll be surprised. And once you, yeah, once you have that information, you can identify areas that you're spending and it's in a spot that 
maybe isn't that important to you and, and it shouldn't be a priority. So it's pretty easy to trim back in those areas. And that's what we were able to do as well. Luckily for us, well, <laughs> luckily for us, my wife is awesome with expenses. She's always tracked super well. So she had everything dialed in perfect. And uh, once we got married, it took a little while to get me on board, but then I, I, I was able to uh, contribute to that information. So now we have it very clearly laid out. So that's awesome. And that's a great life tip. If you can marry someone better than you do it, if, if they'll have you. Yeah, that's right. That is uh, one of the best hacks. Yeah. yeah. So, and then work your ass off. So, they don't <laughs> so uh, in one question I thought of, so, we're talking about flexibility. Um, you know, you guys hit five few years ago. You've uh, managed to get Mindy working, which, uh, you know, buys you a lot of flexibility. Have you guys adjusted your expenses and thought, hey, it sure would be cool to go on a much bigger trip or get a, another car or anything like that? Now, now that you see you're a few years in and you, you are in a much different position than you thought you would be. So have you looked at it? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think about that frequently. And um, uh, there is one change we might make in about a year, which I'll tell you about in a second. But so far, absolutely nothing has changed. We did one big life pivot where we bought another house. We told ourselves we weren't going to do another live and flip. And despite not really needing the money, we did it. And uh, part of that was I, I really enjoyed the work. I wanted this challenge. It would give me something good to do with my time. I really like the design and building aspect of it. But I'm trying to think of we've, I don't think anything in our life has changed. And I don't think it would be. I always think about these hypothetical questions like what would, how would your life be different if you had, uh, if you had 10 million or $50 million? And I just had this conversation with our, our mutual friend, Jake from the Mr. Money Mustache HQ. And his response was the same as mine. We both came to the same thing. And, and that was that we would find ways to bring people who we really enjoy spending time with to the area. So I'd probably, uh, I might buy a house for my family so they could spend more time here or maybe even try to convince them to move here. But yeah, nothing has changed. Uh, the one thing we might do is we've got a lot of road trips planned and we might both our cars have about 200,000 miles on them. I have some car anxiety from uh, poor vehicles of my childhood. So we might purchase a, a new vehicle, which is, uh, that's another controversial FI topic. But yeah, we'd buy a, a new vehicle and an expensive one. It would probably be a Tesla because I'm obsessed with electric cars. So that might be the, the thing we do in about a year from now. But yeah, other than that, no no real change, <laughs> nothing. That's cool. But, and I mean, you've, You've earned it, so I wouldn't, you know, don't feel too bad if you get a, a nice new car. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I like the word earned because we got pretty lucky with some uh, stock picking, which I don't advocate anymore. But uh, yeah, that's a whole other episode, too. Yeah, silly decisions of your youth <laughs> combined with some stubbornness. It, it worked out. It worked out for you. So, so far. Yeah, and I think it, it is interesting, like, again, the flexibility and then thinking we're going to change, you know, over the years and our priorities may shift and you may think, Hey, you know what? I'm into cars now. That's a hobby. And maybe you end up spending more money on, I'm not suggesting you would do that specifically, but you know, you, you could maybe rent some expensive cars and make 
a day of it and just have a good time. And, and I mean, I think that'd be a pretty fun thing to do. And then you don't have to actually own and maintain those cars too. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. And I, yeah, this whole money thing, we should have a conversation about this, but if there's something I think will bring me happiness in life, I will spend money on it without a second thought, but that's a, that's a tough filter. I found, uh, yeah, a lot of things you think will make you happy, like an Acura NSX, you buy it and it turns out it makes you unhappy because you're worried about this expensive chunk of alum- aluminum and steel in, in your garage with a V6 that someone could crash into or ding. So, yeah, I find that's a that's a hard barrier to overcome. I'm trying to think of my last purchase. Well, we, happy. well I'll buy you some time because I, I, I try to apply that filter to, is this going to make me happy or not? And we're going to get a new TV soon. We have had the TV that we own for a few years. It, it's mostly fine, but it's showing its age. And we actually can, uh, you know, quote, use another TV down here in the basement, right? We'll have a little workout space. So we thought, hey, we're going to get a new TV. And we're looking at TVs, which it ranges from, you know, $200 to whatever, $5,000. And wow. we're obviously not looking at super expensive ones, but. We were looking at maybe a $600 one versus a $1,200 one. Our TV kind of sucks now. So like any new TV looks pretty fucking good compared to what we have. And it's going to be bigger and it'll be a faster processor. So when we're picking Netflix shows, uh, we don't have to wait as long when we click the button. So, I mean, we're talking very, very minor improvements. So I'm trying to think, all right. $600 TV versus a $1,200 TV. Will that one make me twice as happy? Probably not. I mean, the new TV probably won't make me twice as happy. Like the new TV will be incrementally better than the last one. A little bit bigger, a little bit sharper, but 1200 versus 600. It's not a two X growth and happiness from my TV watching. Sure. How many inches are you going to go with? I think we're going to do 65, 65 inch. Yeah. We bought a TV, too, last year when uh, COVID kicked off, and that's the exact size we went with. All right. Well, we may have to talk after, because how much was the one that you got? Um, it was only, it was, wasn't even 500 bucks. Like I, okay. Yeah, the thing is, uh, I think part of this is marketing and TV companies trying to get you to buy uh, fancier TVs, but now I guess 8K TVs are coming out, but what is the, uh, I've got shitty eyes, so I can't even read this paper in front of me. I don't think... <laughs> Even the old crappy 720p, I, 720p TV I had. You know, I can't tell the difference between that and the 4K, but it's diminishing returns from here on out. As my eyes get shittier, like soon that 720p TV will be great. Yeah. And, and the fact is, I mean, half the time I'm watching on my phone, right? Which is a tiny screen and it doesn't really matter. So the fact that we can have like really sharp, uh, really sharp television. It doesn't matter. So anyway, it is tough to put things through the filter of happiness. And when you actually apply like some more logic, yeah, quickly, I was like, I don't want to get the $1,200 TV. We could do other stuff with that money. Even if it's just, uh, you know, some stupid activity, right? Like it'll probably be better spent to do uh, a small weekend trip, something like that. Yep. You know, so Doug, I smell another episode in our future that the happiness filter, how to spend money in oh. life and retirement. Let's, let's do it. All right. Yeah. We'll write that down. Awesome. Okay. A- anything else for 4% rule overall? 
I think that's it. I think we've covered it. It's, it's a rule of thumb. Um, don't get it tattooed on your butt because it's not that uh, it's not that rigid. Uh, be, be flexible. Be frugal, and overall, be happy. And we have our uh, our sort of bonus little segment. So we thought we'd do uh, money stories this time around. And you have uh, you have one for us today. I do, and, and it's about this shirt. I, I was thinking about this uh, this ugly red shirt I have. So Mindy and I lived in a college town, and they would have this thing called Hippie Christmas, which I never heard that term. Doug, have you heard of Hippie Christmas? No. Okay. So what, what would happen is in, uh, in May when all the college students would move out, many of them would just throw all their belongings in the trash, and, and they'd be perfectly fine, like uh, desks, chairs, and clothing too, and that's where this shirt actually came from. And I still remember the day I got it. We were going through Hippie Christmas, and uh, we passed by one house, and there's just stacks of clothes, and they weren't even. It wasn't even like someone had dumped them out. They were all folded up, like they just had been removed from the, from their drawer, and stacked up. So I started looking at them. I'm like, oh my god, whoever threw this out was my size. So I got like half of a wardrobe from Hippie Christmas shorts. I think those have since died, but this perfectly fine shirt came out of a. Came out of someone's trash, so it looks pretty good. It looks like they hardly wore it. Yeah, it's fine. I've since even torn it, but uh, and I felt bad when I did this. And I actually, it, this is another embarrassing story. I actually threw this shirt in the trash after I tore it. I'm like, you know what? It's just this little tear. I feel bad for the shirt. Someone had tried to get rid of it one time, so I rescued it from the garbage twice. Once from someone else, and once for myself. So maybe I'll be uh, cremated in it when I croak someday. It looks like it's wrinkle-free, you know, all the stuff you look for. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, there you have it. Very nice. And I was trying to think of a, a specific money story, but, and this could be a whole episode on itself. So I, so maybe I'll, I'll state it as a teaser. I had a foreclosure in 2013. So that's kind of a big a big topic and it turned out everything was fine. And a couple of the cool things were it was a strategic foreclosure or a default. So basically I purchased a house probably in one of the worst years to, to buy a house. It was 2005, late 2005. And of course the value in the house dropped dramatically over the next couple of years. I was upside down. I was renting it out. And the math just didn't work out. I didn't understand when I purchased the house that it probably wasn't ever going to work out as a rental in the, you know, real estate market that I was in, the amount that I borrowed, which was 100%, and many other stupid decisions. <laughs> so at some point, I realized, hey, we need to do something with this. And the best, probably the best financial decision I made was letting it go into foreclosure. Wow. So, Big big story, and um, the the good news is my credit score never ever really dropped down very much, which is huh. counterintuitive from the information that you would get typically. And the other thing is, I didn't need to borrow money, so it didn't matter if my credit score was low anyway. So anyway, do do you have any like? quick questions on that before we we wrap it up it's a big one you know wow yeah that's a lot bigger than my retrieving clothing from the trash yeah i think we should save this for another episode i think we should have a money story episode where we have fun ones and serious ones like yeah. that i'm sure someone could learn something from your story not so much from mine unless you like digging through dumpsters and garbage god i've got another dumpster story i'll save that 
<laughs> a lot of dumpster. At dump. this at this moment, Doug's regretting his decision to have his It's going to turn into the uh, dumpster fire, literally. <laughs> I'm just impressed. There's still a hole in the shirt. Yeah, uh, there it is. I I flew. So uh, I'll I'll hint. This is another hint, uh, kind of like your story. But we flew four round trip plane flights from dumpster diving. But we'll save that for another time. <laughs> I don't even know how those relate. But okay, I think we're pretty good here, and we'll put links to all the resources that we mentioned, all, all the different uh, references for the four percent rule. So thanks, Carl. This is awesome. Yeah, thanks, Doug. We'll talk again next week. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five and uh, actually we don't give high fives in, in person. So the virtual kind is pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using. And that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week.